following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, we are in the midst of the series for the summer before we return back to the Gospel of Luke. In the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've called it Life Under the Sun. And um, this book of Ecclesiastes is, in essence, the testimony of a man who does call himself the preacher. And he's on this journey to find life's meaning by studying the world around him. And as I've been saying in the first two messages of the series, the wisdom books are unique in that what they're asking us to do is not necessarily look at God directly, but they're asking us to look at the world that God has made. And as we look at the world, to then come to understand the nature of the God who made this world that we're living in. And in essence, these wisdom books are a journey, a quest on the search for knowledge, wisdom, or understanding. And often, as we've seen, this journey is not a smooth one. In fact, at times, it gets very harrowing. These wisdom writers are willing to go to some pretty dark places. And along the way, they pour out their grievances with brutal honesty to God. Why is the world this way? What does this say about you, God? Um, In fact, the honesty of these wisdom writers is at times so brutal that some have really struggled to believe that they ought to be in the Bible at all. In the medieval days, the Old Testament scholars labeled the book of Ecclesiastes one of the two, quote, dangerous books in the Bible that they weren't even quite sure they wanted Christians to be reading. The other book, incidentally, is Song of Solomon because of all of its overt sexuality. You know, this is rated R, not rated PG, as uh, a holy book ought to be. Um, Today we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15, which is arguably the most famous passage in the entire book. And I want to introduce the message first by looking at a brief video clip. You know, it's funny, someone recently kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, you don't really use a lot of movie clips like you used to. And they seem kind of let down by that. And I didn't know quite how to take it. Um, I'm actually a really big movie buff. So I think I could find a movie clip for almost every single sermon I preach, to be honest with you. I'm just not sure that's the wisest use of our time to do so. But at least for the last message and this message, you're getting a movie clip, okay? Um, The clip that I want to show you comes from a movie called Click. And I'm guessing probably a fair number of you have seen it. It's the story of a man that's played by Adam Sandler who goes to a Bed Bath & Beyond to buy a universal remote for his television set. And he runs into this mad scientist in a back room, played by Christopher Walken, probably the creepiest actor in Hollywood today. Um, And he instead gives him a remote control for not television, but for his life. That enables him, in essence, to manipulate reality. And so the whole movie is about the unpacking of what happens when Adam Sandler gets a hold of this remote. So let's go ahead and take a look at this clip and then we'll go on. 
although Click is a pretty lighthearted comedy, um, I actually think it taps into a yearning uh, that's inside all of us. And that yearning is a desire, in essence, to control time. And I think the desire to control time is essentially the desire to take control of our lives. Um, I think the truth is all of us wish we had a remote like that, don't we? I mean, don't we wish we could sort of fast forward over all the unpleasant moments that we don't want in our lives? In fact, maybe skip over complete chapters of our life that we don't want to deal with. Wouldn't it be great if you could pause time in those better moments, like a vacation at the beach, so that you can make that moment last and savor every minute of it and frankly enjoy it for as long as you want? Or even a rewind button to return to some of your most cherished moments when life was better so that you could relive those moments as often as you would like. Listen, we may not have a magical remote like Adam Sandler does in this movie, but I would argue this. In our own limited and weak ways, we do try to take time into our own hands. I mean, when you're bored or frustrated and you know you're just going to have to tolerate a situation, the truth is we disengage, we distract ourselves in the hopes of making time pass faster. We do try our best to savor the good moments, don't we? And try to make them last as long as possible. We do everything we can to prevent the bad chapters in our story from happening. And frankly, when they do come on us, regardless of our efforts, we do everything to get through it as fast as possible and to get out of that dark chapter in our life. Some of us are stuck in the past, always reliving the good old days as an escape from the present days. And so in these weak ways, we do our best to try to take control of time in our lives. We try to manage our lives by controlling time. Well, in his quest to find life's meaning, the preacher does some reflecting on time himself. And the summary of his observations on time are found in a poem that's in the first eight verses of chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. And it reads like this. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, before we go any further, we need to make sure that we understand what the preacher is saying in this poem. It's important that we do this because, in truth, there are a lot of questionable interpretations of this poem that are circulating out there, that have become rather popular, both in the church and outside of the church. 
Um, and I would argue this. Probably the most common misinterpretation of the poem is one that if I'm going to guess some of you hold to right now in this room. And that is the misunderstanding that the purpose of this poem is in essence this. The preacher is trying to say, we need to discern the times so that we can know what we're supposed to do in any given situation. Okay? In other words, we need to do the right thing at the right time. We need wisdom to redeem the time so that we can act in the appropriate way depending on the specific circumstances that we are facing. So for example, uh, we're asking ourselves, is this planting time? Is this time for building? Or is this a time to speak? Or am I supposed to be silent right now? For example, when you're at a funeral, it's a time to mourn not to dance. It's a time to cry, not to laugh. Or sometimes you've got to just know when it's time to give up on something and tear it down, as well as recognizing when it's time to build something new. Now, I'm going to argue that, like I said, probably many of you take this poem in this meaning, don't you? This is probably what you've heard before about this is what the preacher is trying to say. Now, I would argue this. There's actually a lot of wisdom to what I just said. There is. That's undeniable. There's a lot of wisdom there. The problem is, I don't think that's actually what the preacher is trying to say through this poem about time. The first problem with that in, this interpretation is that the preacher himself never suggests this to be the application of his teaching on time. In other words... There's no point at which the preacher says, therefore be wise and recognize the times and act appropriately. He never says that. The interpretation is also problematic because it suggests that there are actually appropriate times to engage in what would generally be considered to be some pretty inappropriate behavior. Okay? If you just look at that list... There's a lot of bad things on the list, like dying and uprooting what someone has planted and killing and destroying things and hating people and withholding affection and ripping and tearing things apart and going to war. It would be like if someone were to come up to you and say, you know, I've been meditating on Ecclesiastes 3 a lot these days. And I've been praying about it a lot, and I really think that this is a season when I'm supposed to hate you. And I don't want to do it. God knows my heart. I don't want to hate you, but I just feel led by the Lord that I'm supposed to hate you in this season. So this is the season of hate that Ecclesiastes talks about. And there's something problematic about that, isn't there? Now, there are some who try to get around this, this problem this difficulty by arguing, for example, that the killing is really only referring to capital punishment or hating only refers to hating that which is evil. But I have a hard time believing that the preacher's purpose in telling us this poem is, for example, to call us to exercise the judicious application of the capital punishment, you know, of the death penalty. It just, it seems like a stretch to me to interpret the poem 
in that way. Well, if it's not about doing the right thing in the right time, then what is the point that the preacher is trying to make? Well, I believe the point of the poem is not about understanding the signs of the time so we can act appropriately, but it is essentially just this. The poem is simply telling us how the world operates, regardless of what you do, in fact. Notice that for every season that is described in the poem, the preacher counters it with an opposite season. So there's these pairings. And his point is that there are these cycles in life. And these cycles tend to be in opposition to one another. And this opposition is, the, in fact, the very source of much of the frustration about life. We find ourselves in a season of optimism, where everything is good and we are building and things are growing But without even understanding how it happens, everything now is suddenly being torn down. And all you can do is watch helplessly as everything that you've built is now being destroyed. In one moment, you are thinking about upgrading your kitchen with the anticipated promotion that you want this year. And in the next moment, you found yourself standing in the unemployment line. In one moment, you are celebrating the birth of a child filled with joy about the new life that has come into this world. And in the next moment, you're sitting in a funeral service of a loved one. In one moment, everybody is getting along wonderfully. And in the next moment, everything is falling apart and no one even wants to talk to each other. They are refraining from embracing just when you thought that there was actual hope for global peace, if you're sort of uh, in your 40s and gone through the 80s like I did, you know what it was like to go through the whole thing with Russia, right? The Soviet Union. And with the fall of communism and the fall of the Cold War and uh, nuclear disarmament, there was actually a genuine prospect for peace global peace that we hadn't known for decades since World War II. But who could have anticipated 9-11 and seeing that this generation of Americans is living through the most protracted period of military engagement in U.S. history in this ongoing war on terror for which, frankly, I see no end. This is life under the sun. We're all subjected to different seasons in life by forces that are so much larger than us. And often, these seasons seem to undo the very progress that we felt we were making in the previous season. And these rhythms of life can be incredibly frustrating and infuriating. That's why right after the poem, the preacher really gives, I think, what's driving at the point of everything. In verse 9, he says, What gain has the worker from his toil? In other words, what's the point of all of our efforts when everything we build eventually gets torn down and progress is just like an illusion? I don't get it. I don't really understand 
what the point of life is. Why do I even try? Why do I even make an effort at all? When life is just cyclical, you build, and as soon as you're done building, it's being torn down. You live, and then you die. You're healthy, and then you're sick. And this is just the cycle of life, and it's absurd, and it's meaningless, and it's pointless. At the end of verse 11, he says something interesting. He's talking about God. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In other words, what he's saying is that as people made in the image of God, God has put this sense of the eternal in every single one of us. That is why we cannot be satisfied with living an animal existence. Just trying to survive, just trying to find our next meal, just trying to make it through the day. This is not how you and I were designed to live out our lives. He says, God has put eternity in our hearts. But what's interesting is even as he acknowledges that there is this hunger for the eternal in us, that there is a soul in us that craves for meaning, that craves for understanding, in the same way it's as if God has blocked our path so that we cannot make sense of the world, so that we cannot find the eternal, so that we find ourselves in a place where we're asking, can there really be order in all of this chaos? Can there really be any meaning in the apparent randomness? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been in a traffic jam like this that is so bad that people actually get out of their cars to try to figure out what's going on? I have been in a handful of times in my life in accidents or something like that where the, literally you're stopped and then 10 minutes goes by, 20 minutes goes by, 30 minutes goes by, and there's no movement and you're like, something really bad happened down there ahead of the road. That's actually a great picture of Ecclesiastes 3.11. You know, we, are, we have this inner compulsion to get out of our cars because it's not good enough for us just to sit there and go, well, what are you going to do, you know? There's this inner drive in us that has to figure out what's going on. So you're checking your smartphone and looking for the accident reports and you're trying to do everything. You're standing on top of your car and seeing if you have a line of sight. But the problem is you never do, do you? You can never quite figure it out, so you have to just sit there and wait it out with all the other frustrated commuters. This is what he's talking about. God has put eternity in our hearts that hungers to know the answers to life. And yet it's as if God has hidden those answers from us so that we cannot know. Derek Kidner, I think, puts it really well when he says this. We catch these brilliant moments, but even apart from the darkness interspersed with them, they leave us unsatisfied for lack of any total meaning that we can grasp. Unlike the animals immersed in time, we long to see them in their full context, for we know something of eternity, enough at least to compare the fleeting with the forever. We are like the desperately nearsighted, inching their way along some great tapestry or fresco, in attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us, for we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, 
whole and entire from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity in our hearts. But it's almost as if he has blocked our way from being able to make sense of it all and understand from his perspective how it all works. So what is the conclusion that the preacher makes of all of this? Well, I think we find it in verses 10 to 11. I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. And then he ends with this. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Because this is the way it works. Without faith, without trusting in God, there is actually something that seems absurd about life. What's the point? What's the point in trying when everything you build eventually gets torn down? You do your best. You try your hardest. But you know, there's something circular about life that says, I'm just going to end up right back at the place where I started. Naked I was born. Naked will I return to this earth. For every life there is death. For everything I build, something is destroyed. For every moment of love, there is a season of hate. But I think what the preacher is trying to tell us is this. Through the eyes of faith, we see that God can indeed accomplish his purposes, even in the midst of all of this chaos and evil that I see around me. I believe this is one of the most powerful expressions of faith that a Christian can declare. Is that even when I look at this world and see all of the garbage that is out there and what strikes me as meaninglessness and absurdity, yet because I believe in an all-powerful God, I believe that He can even work through that brokenness even through the evil intentions of people that are trying to bring me down. I believe that God is greater than all of those things and that in His power, He has the ability to make everything beautiful in its time. This is the faith that the preacher is calling us to. What does this faith look like in practice? Well, the first application of it is pretty much what I talked about in last week's message. And it's found, and it's simply this, a life of joy and celebration. A life of joy and celebration. In verses 12 to 13 of Ecclesiastes 3, it reads, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. Okay? So the first expression of this perspective on life and time is to say, listen, he is God and I am not. And when I truly understand that in my life, I don't have to always be so anxious. I don't always have to be in problem-solver mode and feel like I have to fix my life or fix other people. I don't always have to be filled with anxiety and stress about tomorrow. I can just relax and be in the moment and actually enjoy these small moments in life. 
that God gives me as his gift. And I talked about that in the last message, right? How for whatever reason, for many of us, we are never really fully there, right? We're not, we're present in body, but our mind is somewhere else all the time about the next task that we have to check off in our to-do list. Or you're always fiddling with your smartphone, checking over in case there's an email or a text message that you're missing at work. Or you're supposedly playing with your kids, but you're thinking about work. This is, in truth, how most of us live our lives, like observers to our life and not actually participants. We're not fully there. And you know, I've actually been thinking about this a lot in my own life as I've been meditating on Ecclesiastes. And I'm just coming to realize more and more how much that's true of my own life, my own mindset. I'm always there bodily. I can't help that. But God knows my mind is in other places the majority of the time. And this is not a temperament thing. Don't turn it into just a personality issue. This is not even a gender issue. I know that a lot of wives probably hit, elbow their husbands and said, don't I tell you this all the time? I say stuff and you never listen. But the problem is it's not just a gender issue because, yeah, your husband may be drifting off and not paying attention to you and not, quote, in the moment, but you're not in the moment either because you're angry at him. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? There's enough blame to spread around here. I've been thinking about this a lot. I think the hallmark of a Christian, I've really come to believe this more, the real genuine hallmark of a Christian displayed most prominently is that ability to be fully present in that moment with joy and celebration because you know that God is going to run the universe and you don't have to. But nobody else seems to get that. Because you are not consumed by your own inadequacies and limitations. Because you see the problems that are in the world around you and in the lives of your loved ones. But you know that God is the good shepherd and that he's going to care for you even through it all. Tommy Nelson writes this. In many ways, Satan is sometimes easier to understand than God. Satan, in a sense, is very simplistic. He is a being of pure evil. That means his reasons for doing everything he does are easily understood. God, however, is a problem. It's often difficult to interpret his actions in the short term. If he's good and all-powerful, why is there so much suffering in the world? Solomon wants to tell us, that even when we don't understand everything God is doing, we cannot let what we cannot know destroy what we can enjoy. I think that's very important. You're not going to understand why everything happens in life. You're not even going to be able to control much of what happens in your life. But to have faith is to just entrust that to God and to just receive from Him the moments of our life as his good gift to us. That takes courageous faith. You know, um, most of my kids have been taking piano lessons for 10 or more years. And with five kids in our house, there were periods in our life when the piano was being played almost nonstop every evening. In fact, we had to set up a cue system 
to know whose turn it was to get the piano so that they all get their practice in before it was bedtime. But throughout this whole time, I realized that the music that was being played in our house was actually never being played for enjoyment, either by the kids or by us. <laughs> I mean, for the kids, every song that they played was just another hurdle that they had to jump over, a stepping stone to get to the next more difficult song that the teacher was going to give them. For us as parents, it was about listening for the mistakes so that we could correct them and measure their progress. Your tempo is all wrong. Slow down. You're playing it too fast. Turn on the metronome. That was all wrong, that last measure. B flat, not B. Try it again. One day I was listening to my, one of my older daughters playing a rather complicated piano sonata. And as I was listening to that music, I was struck by how beautiful it sounded. And I was also struck by how utterly deaf I was to the beauty of that music for all of these years. I thought, how strange it is that so much music is being played in this house, but there's nobody present to actually enjoy any of it. It's all just work. It's all just duty. It's all just tasks. And the truth is, I think a lot of us live our lives like this. There is music all around us, but we're deaf to it. We're too preoccupied with the worries and burdens of our life to hear and enjoy it. And so the first application that the preacher makes for us is this. Stop and hear the music and receive it as God's good gift to you. There is only one master of this universe and you're not it. So you can rest and take a deep breath and let God be God and you, his child, just receive. Well, this results, this leads to the other result of faith, which is this. It is a life of joy and celebration. In Ecclesiastes 3, verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing could be added to it, nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. In other words, what the preacher is saying is this. God alone sets the times and seasons in our life. You don't get a say in it. You don't have any control over it. And when God sets the times, that will cannot be thwarted. It will indeed happen just as he says it will and the response to that truth is to fear him. Now, we have to take that very carefully because this doesn't mean that we're supposed to be afraid of him like a child would be afraid of an abusive father. That's not what the preacher is saying. To fear him means to give him the rightful respect and reverence that he deserves and even the trust that he deserves, to acknowledge his authority and rule in everything that happens in our lives. That's the conclusion that the preacher gets to, is, listen, things are going to happen in your life, and they're bigger than you. You can't navigate around these seasons. They're just going to hit you, and they're going to hit you hard. 
but recognize that God is in control of all of it. So worship Him. Be in awe of Him. And trust Him through it all. Jeffrey Myers puts it like this. The burden of every being, uh, the burden of being a God is not one that a human creature was meant to shoulder. Along with God-like sovereignty comes the crushing responsibility for your entire life and the outcome of your life. Ecclesiastes is liberating. It tells you that you need not feel guilty for something you cannot control. All times and seasons are in God's hands. We find ourselves enmeshed in these seasons, but we have no sovereign determination over them. They come upon us. We are not in control. We have no leverage, no advantage over these seasons. Wisdom accepts these seasons from God's hand and then follows God's lead by discerning the appropriate dance steps. Faithful and wise living means submitting to God's timetable and thereby responding in a way that acknowledges God's superior but inscrutable plan for your life. I think he states it so well. We don't ever fully understand. And there's no promise in the Bible that God is going to explain everything to you and let you know exactly how it all works. But even in that unknowing, even in the pain, the invitation is one of faith to trust in God and say, I'm going to leave this in your hands. Some thousands of years ago, a prophet named Jeremiah served the Lord in Jerusalem. He served at an exceedingly dark time in Israel's history. The Babylonians sacked the capital, burned it to the ground, tore it apart. They even tore apart every stone in Solomon's temple, burned it to the ground. A horrible massacre occurred at that time as Jews were flung from the hill to their death. Then those who had survived the massacre were carted off to the distant land of Babylon where they lived under the enslavement of the Babylonians. Now, if ever there was a time for a group of people to think, it's all over, it's finished, it's done. There's no meaning, there's no search for purpose. There's no higher calling here. It's all bad. It's pointless. I think it would have been in a time like this. But even in the face of such horrible tragedy, through his prophet, God sends a message to his people. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4 to 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is such an important message to us because what God is saying to the Israelites is simply this. Settle down because this dark season in your life is not going to be over quickly. This punishment that I'm inflicting on you is going to last a while. So build houses, make yourselves comfortable, 
and keep living life. Keep praying. Keep worshiping. Keep being faithful because my plans for you go so much beyond this season right now. And even though it seems like your entire life has become derailed and you're just crashing and burning, he's saying, it's never like that. There are no accidents under my plan. I can take even the brokenness of everything happening around me and I can transform it and redeem it into something beautiful. Your part is to keep your eyes fixed on me, to keep being faithful, to keep praying, to keep seeking me. It's amazing to me that Solomon wrote these words way before Christ ever showed up on the scene to claim the faithfulness of God. But we live in a time of privilege after Jesus has appeared on the earth to demonstrate his love for us. Paul in Romans chapter 8, and we'll just close with these words, says, what then shall we say to these things? Romans 8, 31 to 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You'll hear me quote this verse a lot because it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. What in essence Paul is saying is the cross is a sign that God is giving to you. Saying, whatever it is that you're going through life that causes you to doubt my love for you, whenever you are questioning my commitment to you, what God is saying is, is this. Look to the cross. Look to the cross. And see my son nailed there and tortured on your behalf. And I want you to ask that same question. If I would do this to my own son for you, is there anything that I would deny that is good for you? What greater act or demonstration of my love for you could I give than to crucify my son on your behalf? You may not always understand why God allows certain things in your life. Sometimes you may be tempted to think God hates me. Or at least, God is not there. But the message of the cross is, God is always there. And he always loves you. And the cross is our reminder of his commitment to us. Let's pray. So what does it mean to redeem the time? See, the problem with that classic interpretation of the poem is that it puts all the pressure on us We're the ones that have to be so wise and discerning. And if we fail, then we blew it because we didn't read the seasons properly. See, that's the problem ultimately with the classic interpretation of this poem on time. It's so man-centered. It's all up to me to make my life work based on reading the signs of the times. But the real message that's in this poem is this. No matter how hard you try, No matter how much effort you exert to make your life work, things fail, things fall apart, things break down. Friendships fall apart. Careers are shattered. 
families are shattered. And if you look at all of that without faith, it's horrific. It's brutal. It's almost unbearable. It's absurd. The only conclusion that I could honestly see without eyes of faith is really what's the point in it all? What really is the point? Why even try? But through the eyes of faith, we understand what it really means to redeem the time. Because it means I entrust all of that into the hands of God, who is so much greater than I am. And I'm just going to keep my eyes fixed on Him. And right now, things may not be going the way I like, but I'm going to trust that God's plan is out of His love for me. And I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to keep being faithful. And I'm going to celebrate. I'm going to choose joy. I'm not going to let all these circumstances bring me down. But I want a heart of worship. I want to be fully there in that moment with praise on my lips and thanksgiving. And I want to celebrate these small moments as God's gift to me. Would you just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team will lead us into a few songs of response. Let's pray. Thank <laughs> you.